We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Big Blue Banter, the answer to all your Giants matters. From run game to coaching to Bob Shepard's Pamber. Hosted by Dan Schneier, analysis on fire. A Giants fan since day one, now preaching to the choir. Joined by Nick Bellotto, breakdowns with bravado. Passing you the facts like he passes on gelato. From just outside New York, a couple football dorks. A killer podcast when Dan says receiver court. They do the play-by-play, dropping almost every day. These experts know the X and O's just like Danny O. They do the review of the All-22, dissecting every throw. Osiyu Minora lit up in Zenora when he was a guest on the show. So there you have it, a podcast for Giants fans who are rabid. Who can't wait for Sundays, the NFC East, the Fantasy League standing. We'll see you back here. It's Big Blue Banter. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Filato on this beautiful Friday evening. Well, not so beautiful on the Northeast because I don't know if you've known this, Nick, but you've now been moved away for so long. And once you left, the disaster started happening. Two nights ago, for those of you who also live in New Jersey, you were most likely woken up by a 3.30 a.m. Amber Alert. Beep, beep, just you couldn't stop the noise. And it said... Tornado warning in your area. Get to the basement. Get to shelter. Go to your basement right now. Obviously, I did not go to the basement. I, there's no basement that I could have gone to, and I was just like, fuck it. I'm, excuse my language. I'm going to sleep here, and we'll see what happens. Hopefully, I wake up alive in the morning because it did say get to the lowest ground. Get to the basement. That was two nights ago, and now a hurricane is supposedly hitting. Freaking hurricane. Like, when – a hurricane in northeast New Jersey? That's not even heard of before this time. Apparently, it's supposed to be at its worst in Long Island. So for those of you listening in on the island, up in Long Island, I hope the best for you guys. I hope you guys got a generator. If you don't have a generator, I understand why those things are like over $1,000 and ridiculous and only useful in these rare circumstances. But I shouldn't say beautiful Friday afternoon, evening, because even though it was, it's turning fast, it appears. First off, Dan, I don't believe it would be an Amber Alert. Let's let's hope not, because that's a totally separate thing. It but, was that same noise, though. <laughs> wow. Well, um, I think was it, was it was it that bad of a storm? It was it was that unbearable. Well, that was a supposed tornado, which I don't even know about. Haven't read about since, and everything was intact. There were no like trees down, nothing. So I don't even know what that was about. 
honestly like a year ago or something like that, maybe two years ago, there was a tornado that like ripped by my high school and like there was a little, like a very, very minimal amount of damage. But just to think about a tornado up in North West New Jersey yeah. where it's hilly and, and everything. It just, it, it was a, it's, weird. it's kind of shocking, but weather wise here, I mean, it's freaking beautiful, but I got to say my first full day in Arizona, it rained like the Dickens. All right. And I know I'm using some weird terminology there, but there's this thing in where Arizona. Where is that even from? The Dickens? I have no idea, bro. <laughs> but uh, there's this thing in Arizona that I was not aware of until I came here to visit before I moved here. And I actually thought it was a joke when someone told me it. It's called monsoon season. So basically about two months out of the year, it's monsoon season. And a couple times during that season, it's always going to be humid, which is unbearable. But a couple times during that season, it's going to rain. And it's not like the rain in the Northeast. It's insane levels of rain. It's absolutely ridiculous. And then it goes away. And basically for the next, I don't know, 10 months out of the year, it's beautiful, but hot, you know, it's, it's hot, but the humidity is down. So our first full day here, humid as heck, Dan, it was, it was pretty wild. Did you just hang out inside mostly? Um, well, actually we were like moving around, going to Walmart, getting things. I bought something off of Facebook marketplace, a desk for my, uh, little studio room that I have here set up. So it was, uh, it was pretty, uh, fun, but we had the U-Haul truck. So it wasn't like we were going to get stuff at the road. We still have that truck. Uh, we, we kept it for a few extra days just because we weren't sure how long the road trip was going to end up taking. It took a little bit quicker. So we just had the U-Haul. Okay. Cause I was going to say, it must've felt so, so much relief for you to drop that stupid thing off. We dropped it off this morning, to be honest. Okay. Now, with the with the car that we had dragging the car, it was a fun experience. But uh, I, I don't know if I'd recommend it uh, driving the way. We will be recapping the two joint practices between the New York Giants and the Cleveland Browns this week, obviously prior to Sunday's preseason game. But a lot of action, a lot of good stuff to talk about. But I'll give a shout-out to Brooklyn Brewery in Brooklyn, New York. The Brooklyn Summer Ale, I'm enjoying one right now after a long day. My God, this Brooklyn Summer Ale, my hot take here is this, Nick. I don't think you can find a better summer beer than the Brooklyn Summer Ale. Have you had it? Well, actually, who am I asking? You've obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say Super no. I, question. I have, of course, I have not had it. But listeners of the Big Blue Banter, let us know what your thoughts are on the Brooklyn Summer Ale. In my mind, you you won't find a better summer beer than this beer. So shout out! I'm enjoying this, and I'll probably have another after this podcast. So is it? So what summer beer is it only available during the summer? Like, why is it referred to as this as a summer beer? It's actually not. I think this is available all year round, the Brooklyn Summer. Um, I think it's a style of beer. It's like a – It's so it's like think of a pale ale, but it's a little lighter than a pale ale. I guess lighter. Lighter is not the right word to use, but it is lighter. Well, Dan, if it's a, if it's a pale ale, maybe it should get a tan. <laughs> oh, my God. You've lost your sense of humor since moving oh, out west. No. First, you had that weird joke about that football – defunct football team that I think you edited That's out when it. I was listening back yeah, to the that cup wasn't- that wasn't a joke. That was just a, a fact. The you, were making some kind of, you, you were saying it was funny or something. No, I thought it was. I thought it was funny to myself because it's a team that I used to just. Uh, I did research on when I was like a young, when I was a kid, when I was like thirteen, and then I ended up in Dayton, and I was like, ah, oh, this is where the triangles are. So it's or, safe to say you may never be breaking down film for the New York Giants right now for the Big Blue Bander podcast if you didn't first break down film for the triangles. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. The triangles set me on the path towards the New York Giants. I think the triangles, if I'm going to be honest, though, they ran a little bit too much two-man. I think they needed to mix up their coverages a bit more if they wanted to, you know, maximize who they could be. Absolutely. I mean, way too much two-man. They they were just getting picked apart uh, all the time by mesh concept. It was ridiculous. So easy to beat two-man with mesh. But let's talk about the Giants and the Browns. 
any joint practices this week. We'll start with, I guess, big news. I mean, it's big news. It's always big news when we're talking about Saquon Barkley. And according to Joe Judge, Barkley will not be playing against the Browns in this second preseason game. I think we'll get a little bit more insight as to why with another quote Judge said talking about this preseason game versus New England preseason game. But we'll get to that in a bit. It's in the show notes. But he said everything we're doing for Barkley is very scripted. So a few one-on-ones here, a few seven-on-sevens for him. He still hasn't done any 11-on-11s. Keep that in mind. There's times where we put the red jersey on him. We're very specific about who he's working against on our team to make sure – we're really controlling the rep. So, you know, I don't think this is too much of a surprise. What do you think, Nick? Absolutely not. I mean, you got to be really, really conservative and, and just smart with how you're going to employ Saquon Barkley coming off of that devastated, devastating injury. I'm wondering if – I'm guessing, well, T.J. Brunson is hurt now, but I'm imagining Saquon Barkley probably wouldn't have been taking many reps against T.J. Brunson in those seven-on-sevens. That would be surprising. <laughs> Absolutely not. But uh, after after Brunson literally laid out Galladay, and two days later Galladay comes up limp on the hamstring. Just kidding. It has nothing to do with that Brunson hit. But I mean Brunson hit. But we obviously don't want that happening to any other Giants players. No, absolutely not. But I, this is what Judge is doing, though. He's stressing the fact that, you know, none of these injured players are going to be participating in drills against the Cleveland Browns. So that includes, obviously, Barkley, Kadarius Toney, who, which is still we're not really 100% certain what's going on with Kadarius yeah. Toney because the Giants aren't obligated to submit a uh, injury report right now. So I'm really curious to, to know what that is. Nate Solder wasn't participating, but he should be coming back shortly. And then, obviously, Galladay as well. And I have no problem with that. I mean, I'm all about the joint practices to see how the coordinators are going to do, to see how a lot of these healthy players are. But there's no reason to risk any of these injured players in these joint practices, especially after what we saw uh, today in camp with Sterling Shepard, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah, and especially after the fact that the Jets just lost Carl Lawson for the season. That's Uh, devastating. I mean, it's just devastating stuff. Rushing And he wasn't rushed back or anything. He was healthy, but... Carl Lawson is somebody who we talked about this offseason. We really liked his upside. He's still just 24. Had an explosive pass rushing season last year. Was looking great in camp. And now it's a torn Achilles. So who knows what will happen there. Though I will say this, and we'll get to this a little bit later. Our fellow torn Achilles recovery, Lorenzo Carter, has looked pretty good. And has looked pretty good specifically in these joint practices. So we'll get to that in a bit. Um, What do you want to, Nick, how about, what are your thoughts on judges kind of talk about, you know, decisions regarding Jones uh, as far as playing this Sunday against the Browns. Yeah, I, I, just, I hope I see Daniel Jones. I hope we all get to see Daniel Jones for at least two to three series, man. But Judge, he came out and he said, I just don't, I just want to make sure we keep our overall players loads and consideration going into it because it'll also be a quick turnaround going from Cleveland, getting back home, training up to Boston and going against New England for a couple of days before playing the preseason game, though, which we're going to truly treat as more of the regular season dress rehearsal. That last part, Dan, makes me be like, are we going to see any Daniel Jones or are they going to really just try to leave him out? I think, I think at the end of the day, hopefully, and by the time maybe the listeners hear this, there'll be a decision and maybe hopefully we get two series, three series, and then a whole half against New England. I'm not 100% sure why uh, with, with Daniel Jones specifically we're, we're being so cautious, though. Like I want to see Daniel Jones, and I think it's probably good for him to see other defenses like they got to do in this joint practice and like they will get to do against New England, but the preseason game is different than joint practice. I'll say this, Nick. I think we might have a little bit of a different point of view on this, just listening to how you just broke that down, and that's not to say I'm right by any means at all, or you're right. It's just different. I think, first of all, I want to point to what he said here, which is the key takeaway before I do that, which is that 
we're going to treat New England as more of a dress rehearsal. We have a short turnaround to get to New England, to get up to Boston, and to get to those joint practices. I think he wants to make sure they're fully healthy and fully stocked for that for those two joint practices or whatever it is in Boston. And then that preseason game, which he's saying they will treat as a regular season dress rehearsal. I really think he's just like, listen, we need to get... We need to make sure we're ready to go with everybody for that final game. And as far as Jones playing or not, I'm with you. I think at most we'll see two or three series. But I'm less I'm less concerned with him playing right now in the preseason than than I guess you might be. Just because for me at this point with Jones, if this was still year one in the system, I'd want him to get all the reps he can. But he, I think from a terminology standpoint, as far as calling the plays and knowing what to do from calling the plays standpoint, is likely already as up to speed as he's going to be with these reps or not. But what he still struggles with is processing defenses. I mean, he's not going to see anything in the preseason. If he has 100, in my this is just my opinion, by the way, not, not correct. I'm not saying mine is correct, but I'm just saying, in my mind, if he has 500, 750, or 12 preseason snaps, it doesn't matter too much from a mental, post-snap mental processing standpoint because we know defensive coordinators don't like to do much at all from a post-snap pro, uh, standpoint in the preseason. They're not, they don't want to show any of that. All the rotations they're going to do during the regular season to trick these quarterbacks up, they don't want to give any of that away right now, I don't think so. It's mostly vanilla coverages, and especially from a pre-snap to post-snap standpoint. So to me, uh, as far as the timing goes, yes, that's a little concerning. But again, Galladay's not on the field. Tony's not going to be on the field. And maybe he can kind of get the timing down just in these joint practices. They have two straight weeks of it. So I'm a little bit less concerned because I guess the com- combination of the joint practices, back-to-back weeks, and just that you know he's not seeing much from these defenses. He's not going to see all that much. You're correct there. And I don't. I, I just... I like the whole preparation for a game, and I, Daniel Jones is somebody who's never going to struggle with the preparation part. I mean, he he's a you know his work ethic is lauded by the New York Giants, but I do like to I would like to see that preparation going into the game, getting ready for a game, and then getting those series live speed, live reps, timing with the new players that he has. A little bit of cohesiveness being built for a series or two because Daniel Jones, to me, isn't somebody who is – and I know you would agree with this part – isn't somebody who's proven quite yet. And that's kind of where I'm going, but I don't think it's egregious if, if he doesn't. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying I would like to see it. But, you know, Joe Judge, I trust his judgment uh, with this, especially with the quick turnaround that he alluded to. Yeah, I think that would be the reason for me, too. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about the offensive line situation. Giants replaced the starter for some of these first-team snaps in – Today's practice, Friday's practice, and obviously as they replace the starter, somebody who came in for him and wasn't even on the roster a few weeks ago, and probably a month ago, before training camp even started, wasn't even a thought to be part of the season. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a crappy thing. Hopefully it doesn't come back to bite him. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about tensions flaring up in practice because there were, you know, it got chippy out there. But before we do any of that, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Nick, before we get to the offensive line, let's talk about the, you know, tensions flaring up in practice today at, you know, these joint practices with the Giants and Browns. We saw little, you know, pieces of it starting to formulate yesterday uh, in the first joint practice Thursday when kind of Drew Peppers jawing at Baker a little, but those were supposed to be playful jawing, right? Playful, a couple, you know, hits after the whistle, things of that nature. And then today it seemed like things were about to go off the rails. I mean, at one point, Judge had to get involved talking to Stefanski, Brown's head coach. What did you make of that? And first, I guess, walk through with the fans what actually happened today. So, yeah. To, uh, so yesterday, I guess it was um, Jabril Peppers. Obviously, he used to be a member of the Cleveland Browns, so he has a lot of good friends over there. It seemed to be lighthearted drawing from all the tweet, uh, all the tweets on the beat. I almost said all the beat reporters were kind of um, saying that, you know, Baker Mayfield was like, hey, 80 percent completion percentage against you right now. And just things like that it seemed very lighthearted. But then today, Jabril Peppers got into it with Malik Jackson a little bit and Jabril Peppers alluded to the fact that he had no idea who Malik Jackson was when uh, – <laughs> so kind of just like making fun of the fact that he's a bit player. Even though Malik Jackson, I would say, has had a solid NFL career, but that's neither here nor there. But the <laughs> big thing that ended up happening was – He was Sterling. also on the Eagles last year, by the way. Yes, he was Jabril on the Eagles. should definitely know who he is. He played him twice. Yes, yes. It was just a sign of disrespect. And that was kind of like during practice. And then towards the end of practice, Troy Hill, who's a cornerback – for the Cleveland Browns. I believe he came over from the Rams this past year, got into a legit fist fight with Sterling Shepard. And Sterling Shepard did the rope-a-dope, man. He was ducking, dodging, and diving away from all these punches. And then John Ross had to step in to kind of carry Sterling Shepard away. But Troy Hill threw like two punches, missed them both, and then it got broken up. But those were like real punches that he threw. And if it connected, that could have been ugly, so similar to what ended up happening with the Titans and Buccaneers practice where Antonio Brown connected a punch on a cornerback's face. I don't know if you ended up seeing that. But tensions were definitely just really, really high in this practice. And a lot of uh, – the beat reporters that are on scene were saying that there were other chippy things going on, a lot of stuff after the whistle, little pushes and shoves, a lot of trash talking. And that's just what you expect in these joint practices. It's going to happen. It happens when offense and the defense of the same team go up against each other. You know what's going to happen when the you know players are wearing different colored jerseys. I, I agree with you. I think nothing wrong of it. I, You know, Nick, I really love the Giants are doing these joint practices. I think these are so valuable. So, so valuable. It almost makes me mad that past head coaches haven't done this. Or, you know, even at best, I think prior to this season, we've seen one of these. I'm so happy they're doing two of these. Browns and Patriots. These are, it's got to be so much more valuable for these guys to get practice reps against another team, against another defensive coordinator, against another offensive coordinator, than it is against your team day in and day out. And so, yeah, tensions will flare up more. It's not like the Giants. We saw a fight earlier in Giants camp, a 
quote-unquote fight, more of just like a little mini scuffle that Judge didn't like, and he, you know, had them afterwards running the laps and, you know, doing the wind sprints and whatnot, which, by the way, I saw he, after practice, first doing practice and wrapped up yesterday, and can only assume it happened again today, uh, the Browns were just chilling and the Giants were running suicides and wind sprints, like, and, and, you know, we've talked about this before. My whole take on this, I'm not judging it pretty much either way. I'm just dead down the middle, but I'm definitely not in the camp of some of Giants Twitter. It's like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing. This is why Judge is the greatest like nah nah M- miss me on that please please miss me on that but at the same time it's fine whatever at least they'll be conditioned hopefully they're fine with this type of style but you know like I said it's gonna be tensions flaring you're facing another team you know that you don't know these guys they don't care like when these coins it always seems to be Nick between the corners and receivers you brought up Antonio Brown at you know in those Bucks joint practices and it's always the receivers and corners because they're battling with hands they're you know hand fighting at the line of scrimmage to get to get releases from both sides of the ball so it doesn't surprise me much at all it also isn't really a surprise when Sterling Shepard reportedly and Darius Slayton were just torching the Browns secondary for much of the practice as well. So I'm, I'm sure Hill, you know, was very frustrated by that right. fact too. Because, I mean, we had the uh, Shepard, I mean, I, I think I saw the clip. I think uh, Dan Duggan, it's not Duggan, it's Duggan, tweeted a video of a, uh, of a it seemed like a tight field bunch, which is something that you and I love to see. And it was a high-low from the number one receiver, which was Sterling Shepard. Back up, back up, back up, because we always do this, and then we always get comments from listeners like, if would you guys not mind just kind of slowing it down and breaking down yeah, all of these absolutely. terms? So let's do it piecemeal. So let's start with what you mean by the um, – the, what was the first what was the first thing you put down? The, the tight field bunch. That's what I want to get to. Yeah, so it was to the field side of the offense, which means the ball is on the far hash. So then you have, obviously, a lot more space from the far hash to the sideline. And it was a tight bunch. A bunch is when three receivers are really tight, basically forming a triangle, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. And what I mean by tight means it wasn't by the numbers. It wasn't just off the numbers. It was kind of tight towards where the football was. So it was a little bit outside of the near hash. So everything is kind of condensed. And that kind of forces a lot more traffic and things along those lines. So the number one receiver, which was Sterling Shepard, and the number – actually, I think Shepard might have been the number three receiver, and then Slayton was the number one receiver. And then number one receiver means the outermost receiver in the bunch. The number three is the one closest towards the football. So Shepard ran a deep dig – or a, I would say an intermediate dig route, which is about – I think it was about maybe like 10 yards and then a square in. It just jolts inside, 90-degree cut. Slayton ran a drag route, and that creates a high-low. And a high-low means that, hey – I'm putting this defender in conflict. In this case, it would have been, I guess, the nickelback or that overhang defender. Uh, he He's going to have to make a decision. He has to sink to cover Shepard's dig, or he's going to have to drop down to cover Slayton's drag route. And on this play, he saw Slayton's drag route coming, and he went downhill on the drag route, and there was a big opening for Shepard to make the catch. And this was actually in the red zone, which the Giants had an excellent red zone period, and it resulted in a touchdown. And then the number two receiver in that bunch, so the one in the middle, was Evan Ingram. He ran like a quick outside spot type of route where he just ran, it was a little bit angled towards the outside, and then he just turns his head and just continues towards the sideline. And that occupied, I guess, the safety's attention because Shepard was pretty wide open, and he had the inside leverage, and the underneath coverage was just absolutely focused on Darius Slayton, who actually was the number three on this play, and it resulted in the touchdown. So it was a really, really nice 
play call and execution from the Giants offense and Shepard was wide open. It's something that you and I have been talking about a lot, man. Like we want to see more of those high low putting defenders into conflict. We saw it sometimes last year. I don't want to make it like it never happened. Obviously Jason Garrett's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing, but this actually worked in live reps and uh, 11 on 11 drills. I love to hear it, Nick. And I, it's, it's never that we're making it that Jason Garrett didn't do it last year. It would be literally impossible to call an NFL offense and not do it at some point. It's not like you can literally just run four curls to the sticks and spacing routes to the sticks all game for 100% of your pass plays. What we've been saying, and what is not just what we've been saying, Nick, what is the truth? If you break down the film, it's dead-on, spot-on truth, irrefutable truth, is that he just didn't do enough of it. The first season, Daniel Jones made it to the NFL with Pat Shermer. There was all half-field, high-low type stuff. or Not all, but again, a lot of it. A whole lot more of it, and it worked out much better for Jones' skill set. So this is a great sign that Garrett is learning. He's adjusting. I thought this was a huge day for Garrett, in my mind, Nick. This was a big Jason Garrett day. It might even make the intro of this – or that, the headline title intro of what we – turn into iTunes for this episode because it's not just this. It's what you talked about in the red zone. There was a lot of talk of pre-snap motion that created opportunities for the Giants in the red zone, and the Giants were really successful. You hinted on it. The Giants were super successful in the red zone. According to Zach Rosenblatt, tweets from the beat, early version of that, Jones was 12 of 20 in the red zones. And according to Dan Dugan, the Giants offense was quote unquote on fire in red zone period against the Browns. And and I'm sorry, Duggan, I keep getting that wrong. I'm going to have to like put like a I don't even need like a Pavlovian response or something, something to get me going, dug in on this one. But I'm always bad at this. Once I get a name in my mind, it's like stuck in there. And the way to pronounce it is stuck in there. And I've done this at work with colleagues, and I don't like it about myself. So hopefully I can improve on that. But Duggan said they were, quote, unquote, on fire during the red zone period. And other beat writers tipped off some of the pre-snap plays they've made, some motion. One of them was to get open, I believe, uh, Alec Bachman for his touchdown in the red zone. Excellent stuff. Even the play you broke down. Yeah, it's not pre-snap motion, but we love the bunch. We wanted more bunch last year. We wanted more high-low reads to put stress on different players, the defense, the overhang defenders, the safety. So big day in my mind for Jason Garrett. Yeah, think about it from a Daniel Jones perspective or just a quarterback's perspective in all. You're basically told on this play, look, you're going to read this defender. You want to read this defender. If this defender sinks, you're going to dump it down on that drag route. If this defender comes up to play the drag, you're going to throw it over his head to the dig route. That's what we talk about a lot, putting defenders into conflict. It's an easy read. And then if, say, something unexpected happens and neither are open, then there's the check down that you can just dump the ball off. And this can happen quickly within like two seconds, two, two and a half seconds. Just get the football out of his hand, hit his back foot if he's under center, and fire the football. And that's what um, we just need to see, I guess, more of of that and that's what we saw on that little play that uh, Duggan ended up tweeting. And let me ask you this: Which defenders are put in conflict when you have four spacing routes that break back toward the line of scrimmage and toward the quarterback at the sticks? Like who's in conflict there when you run that play? Not a lot of defenders, no. Because <laughs> no one. Because... Like how can anyone run that often when you know you're not putting a defender? I guess you're assuming like we can beat them with just spacing and quick timing and rhythm, it's... and it could work at times, I guess, but it really should be used like a sparingly, you know, change of pace. It's almost like something I would use, like as a pitcher who throws his change up 10 times a game, slider 70%, fast, or, or fastball 70%, slider 20%, whatever it may be, but that 10% pitch is kind of how I would use that play, not or that concept, I should say, not like he used it. 
yeah, it's all time. That play is all timing, rhythm, pre-snap leverage, and just trying to read the cornerback where he is pre-snap and then how he reacts post-snap. But when the defense knows that play is a huge yeah. part of what you're going to do, they're going to play that play, which we saw. Yeah, they'll give you fake leverage. They'll give yeah. you fake leverage. They'll make it look like there's leverage here, and then they'll take it away right after the snap of the rotation. That happened all season to the Giants last year. Not even just with the rotation, just with how the cornerback's going to play it, too, or the linebacker if it's yeah. the tight ends, which we saw with Fred Warner last year. And the San Francisco 49ers did it basically that entire game, and that just created a model for other teams to yeah. end up uh, replicating. We saw it basically all season after that. And that model wasn't just, like, born there with Fred Warner. We saw it the year before during Daniel Jones' rookie season against the Vikings. Uh, well, <laughs> the Vikings game in the rookie season, that was just a, such a collapse of – a pass protection on Hal Hunter's part and the way that uh, Mike Zimmer schemed that defense. I, I remember that game, man. That was, that was a work of art. And I felt bad for the Giants offensive line because there were, there were several times in that game where I think Will Hernandez was schemed two on one by himself. And I'm just like, how can this consistently happen? No, that was a, that was an excellent game plan by the Vikings defense. No doubt about it. All right. Some other notes on kind of the offense, according to Art Stapleton tweet from the beat. Jones threw one interception a day. That's a good thing. That's not much. I mean, I think Baker threw more than one today. Jones was 15 of 18, according to Zach Rosenplatt, on the 11 and 11 drills. Good stuff. I mean, we don't really know exactly what kind of throws these were, if any of them were challenging in tight windows. And again, I want to be clear, these defenses are not going to be throwing much at the quarterbacks right now. There will not be many, you know, there's not much to process post-snap in my mind right now. It's pretty vanilla. So stats on paper, let's keep them in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Rosenblatt as well, he didn't watch the seven on sevens closely. He was focused on offensive line, defensive line, one on ones, but he counted one interception there for Jones. I think that was his only one. And then he said there were more for Mike Glennon, who had a rough day. Uh, I, I think at this point with Glennon, at, you know, Nick, at first I was like, all right, Glennon has an NFL arm and it's live. So like this is maybe an upgrade on Colt McCoy. And like sadly, the state of the <laughs> the state of the NFL right now, Mike Glennon is not an upgrade on Colt McCoy. Like it's actually gonna be worse for the Giants to have Glennon as their two instead of McCoy. Even though McCoy has no arm, even though McCoy can't stretch the field whatsoever, even though he's so limiting and defenses can play him in a certain way, and he has no athleticism whatsoever from that standpoint either, escapability, off-schedule stuff. He's still somehow, just with his mind alone, better than Glennon. And this really brings me to my next point, Nick. I have a, I, I have a take to make, Nick, here. I'm going to say this, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. This is going a little off topic, but I think the listeners might appreciate it. I think that playing, playing quarterback in the NFL, or quarterback in the NFL, let's say that, starting quarterback in the NFL, is the hardest job in the world. Because think about this. Before you bash this take, think about this. What other job right now in any country, in any state, anything in the world, are there maybe 10 to 12 people who can do the job well, consistently do the job well, maybe 10 to 12? What other job, brain surgeon, rocket scientist, there's more than 12. There's definitely more than 12 in both of those fields. What other job can you think of where maybe 10 to 12 can do the job successful on a consistent basis? I'm not sure, but that is a very extremely hot take. And, and it's also because, you know, obviously football. Is it hot, though, or is it just spot on one of the best takes you've ever heard in your life? I would say it's hot because it's a Why? because it's really because it's a cop competition so the other people that you're playing it's a game you know the other people you're playing against are also going to be incredibly talented as well whereas a brain surgeon is out there saving people's lives and working on people's brains. I didn't say it's a harder job to do I said it's a harder job to be okay I'm sorry it's a the hardest job to be good at 
is NFL quarterback. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably up there, especially in a sport, I would say. Can you name any other job, non-sports, any job in the world where there's only 10 to 12 people who can consistently do it well? If you can name any job in the world, I'll consider this a hot take. If you can't name that, I want you – I don't want you to, but I'm I'm spot on. I don't care what you say. It's, a, it's one of the best takes I've ever had. Unless you can name another job where only 10 to 12 people can do it consistently well. Think of it. Anything. I'm not sure. I'm sure there are jobs probably out there. Uh, what? I mean, you could probably go to other sports. I'm not sure if there are really good goaltenders in soccer. I don't really follow soccer well enough. There's got to be 10 to 12 good goaltenders. And even so, like, with the, there's consistently pretty good goaltenders, you know? There's, like, when you the drop-off at quarterback, when you get to these Glennon types, like, there's probably, like, the 45th best quarterback maybe or, like, maybe 50. It's, like, devastatingly bad. I mean, you have you, – even once you get into the deep 20s, you're talking about, like, the, the Drew Locks of the world. And, and you're just, like, talking about guys who are just not consistent from any standpoint. Yeah, Drew Locke. Uh, I thought, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll move on. I thought you were going to love this take. I thought you were going to be a mind-blowing as it was. I was really excited about giving this take. It fell, it, and, and it's okay. It fell on deaf ears. It's fine. It's all right. We'll see what the listeners say. We'll see if the listeners are more interested in this than I am. And I want to make clear, not the hardest job to do. It's obviously harder to be a brain surgeon. Let's keep that in mind. We're just playing a sport. But the job that's hardest to be good at, that's that's the take. Yeah, it's uh... – you just need so many things to be a quarterback. You need to have some sort of level of athletic ability. You need to have the probably had the ability to play football at one point, which not a lot of people actually had that or were just offered that opportunity. Just when you throw the, that that competitive nature of just it's it's a game into the element. It, it I don't know. It just creates a something that makes me think like there's probably other jobs that are uh, difficult. But the way you framed it the second time, I mean, that, that's much more applause. Well, that's the take. That's the take. We can, let's edit out the first thing because that's not how I meant it. I meant <laughs> it. What job is harder to be consistently good at? What job is there only 10 to 12 people are consistently good at? I've just been thinking about this, watching Glennon. You know, I went back and watched Glennon and Thorson. They're just so bad at quarterback. Like, they're not good. And, and you look across the league, watch all these preseason games. They're all awful. Like, these guys are not good. And it's just a problem across the league. There's no one good that's why when you are lucky enough to find one it's like it's it like now you're good like you're locked you're in lock you're going to be a contender from this point on <laughs> no, i i feel that 120 percent, yes and i hope the giants can find one of these 10 to 12 guys I hope daniel jones can become one of these 10 to 12 guys but mm-hmm. it's uh but uh, the jury's still out on that if we're gonna be honest mm-hmm. yeah uh, sure. Uh, agreed. We'll have to see. This is maybe the year where it happens. Um, a, a couple other notes. Excellent touchdown pass from Daniel Jones to Dante Pettis. Back corner of the end zone. Tight window, according to, I think this was Rosenblatt. Good velocity, good touch, right over two defenders per Rosenblatt. Uh, he's from NJ.com, Zach Rosenblatt. And, you know, Pettis was talked about as maybe somebody who might not make this roster. He still might not be somebody who makes this roster. There's been a lot of CJ Board hype. There's been a lot of fanfare around Bachman. There's guys who maybe offer more special teams-wise. I think Pettis is probably competing for a spot, even though I like Pettis, by the way. I think he's a good receiver. <laughs> I got, I'm just straight up, from what I've seen from Pettis, I like when he's on the field. I think he's solid, but good to see him have there. Jones said it was good to go against another defense because you get to see other looks and schemes. Yep, that's what we were talking about before. 100%, yeah, and that actually, the touchdown pass to Pettis, that was my eyes, that that said oh, that nice. Rosenblatt. So Duggan tweeted, I think I think it was Duggan that tweeted a video 
of of the play and it, it doesn't show it just shows Daniel Jones it doesn't show how Pettis got open but it shows the pass really well the, the path of the ball and the ball had really good velocity and it had to have just enough touch to get over the outstretched arms of the cornerback and Dante Pettis was wide open in the back of the end zone by the back pylon so I mean that's just an excellent throw from Daniel Jones there and Jones had a couple of them really nice passes throughout camp too Dan a couple to Darius Slayton I saw one where Darius Slayton had it wouldn't be a back I guess it would kind of be a back shoulder throw only it was the front shoulder so a front shoulder throw where where Darius Slayton was running with his head torn ter, turned towards the sidelines and then Jones put it towards his opposite shoulder and he turned and caught it and it, it, it was a really really tough adjustment and Slayton made a great play on the football and had to kind of like wrestle it away from a defender almost to secure a touchdown pass. That was one of the touchdown passes that Jones ended up throwing. I'm not sure if that was seven on seven or 11 on 11 though. And then Slayton also got open on a deep horizontal crosser. That was a good, probably like 15 to 18 yard gain. And you just love to see that because Slayton, somebody we're not talking about all that much because the Giants added Kadarius Tony and Kenny Galladay getting Saquon Barkley back. Sterling Shepard kind of has more fanfare than Slayton, but Slayton, Slayton is somebody we shouldn't be forgetting about. Yeah, not at all. Slayton's been having a really good camp. We even saw, you know, and especially in these joint practices, we saw flashes from Slayton last year prior to the in- injury that hasn't been on the books, but we think he's playing through one. You know, and prior to defense is kind of just taking away post-Barkley, we saw some really good adjustments in the air, I thought, from Slayton last year on deep balls. He's not going to always be that back shoulder kind of guy you want to put up for contested catch situations, but he showed a little bit more than you expected. And I want to say this about Jones. You, the, the rep you broke down, the touchdown pass to Pettis, that's an example of the flash. Like, Why are me and Nick still believers that Jones can be the guy for the Giants? It's because of the flash moments. If you take a look just on paper, what Jones has done on film through the first two years, it does not look like a guy who will be your franchise quarterback. But then there's the flash moments. There's the ball like that that comes out tight, really good spiral, not any wasted movement, good velocity, and good touch. Or think about the Golden Tate touchdown throw uh, from a little, I believe it was last year, where it was kind of back end zone corner, where he kind of put it in a perfect spot over the top, but also with good velocity and good touch. There are flash moments from his arm. It's still, it, it's like, it's not a great arm, but it has its moments, his arm. He has some throws that are like, that's a wow throw. He's made multiple wow throws throughout his career, more than a lot of other quarterbacks, I think, who are at this stage on paper. You know, Because on paper, it doesn't look good. He's turned the ball over one and a half times per game. That's unacceptably bad. He doesn't have many yards per game. His, you know, his yards per attempt, not great. Those are three key stats, and he's been bottom five in all of them. But those flash moments give you hope that if this guy gets a little improvement on his line, if he starts to process defenses better and faster and more correctly – well, maybe he can be a guy, and I think we saw that a little bit today with Ingram, too. You talked about this one, or you wrote this in the notes, Nick. Ingram had really nice separation on a quick breaking in route, where it's a quick in, a drag route, which we talked about wanting to see more of. What was Ingram's best play from the past two seasons? It was that in-breaking drag route against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Jones' first start that he took 70-plus to the house. More routes that break toward the sideline for Ingram. More routes that break toward the uh, end zone vertically. So. I'm happy to see that as well. Absolutely. And Ingram, I feel like a lot of people who follow the Giants, this guy's useless, get rid of him. He's not, though. Like, he's a very, very good athlete that if he's used correctly, I feel like he can provide value towards this Jason Garrett offense and the New York Giants. I just don't think he should be pigeonholed into the wide tight end role in Garrett's offense. And that's what Garrett tried to 
put him in as. And I understand why, because Ingram is a tight end, and the tight end is a big part of what Jason Garrett wants to do. It's just that's not how you best utilize Ingram, because he doesn't concentrate well. <laughs> he doesn't have great concentration when he has to turn around back towards the quarterback, locate the ball. His hands aren't that great. He's not that crisp of a route runner. All those things are true, but you can still utilize him on those horizontal routes. And if you get him matched up against a linebacker in man coverage on a horizontal type route, he can he can just be an effective weapon, and all he has to do is make one person miss. If he makes that one person miss, he can take the ball, you know, 10, 15 yards, possibly to the house like we saw in Tampa Bay. You nailed it, Nick. I think Ingram's best attribute by far as an NFL tight end is his second gear. He might have the best second gear of any tight end in the NFL. The only one I think who compete with him is Noah Fent. Even Darren Waller does not have the same level second gear. Waller is smoother. Waller might have the same kind of straight line speed. But second gear... That's number one, Ingram, maybe Noah fan. That's the only one who can compete. So that's what you have to utilize. It's best to just view this guy right now. Look, they've got him on the on the contract. He's going to be here this year. He's not getting traded at this point. Just view him as a bit role player, right? Like just somebody who can occasionally give you what you just talked about, Nick. And when he's not giving you that, well, at least he's running those types of routes to kind of take away defensive attention or to kind of be a decoy. But just view him as that bit guy, and that's so much better because there was a rep yesterday I didn't like from Ingram that I saw a video on. I'm not sure if you saw the video on this one, Nick. Jones threw a one-on-one, an ISO route, another one. I mean, this is gonna, the offense is going to have a ton of these types of plays this year. The Giants didn't come down with them last year. It was like Austin Mack and Golden Tate a lot of the time and Sterling Shepard. This year we're – and Slayton. This year we're hoping it's Galladay. And I, I mean, I guess that's kind of it for the, what it will be versus it was last year. But this route was an ISO vertical to Ingram. <laughs> and just watching Ingram go up for this, this ball, man, I mean, like, he's very bad with body control in the air. I think that's one of his worst traits, body control in the air on those contested catch situations. The best I ever saw do that was Larry Fitzgerald. One of the second best I've ever seen do it, but I'm not going to call him second best, was DeAndre Hopkins. That's what I mean when I'm talking about body control in the air. CeeDee Lamb, watch him play. He's got unbelievable body control in the air, and it helps him make these incredible contested catch situations where – when they're not open, it doesn't really matter because they're going to make a play on the ball. Ingram, though, it's just so unnatural watching him try to jump, leap, adjust his body, and have that kind of control to then bring down the ball. And maybe that's one reason why three coaching staffs haven't used him as extensively as we would like yeah. up the seam. And we saw it in week one against the Steelers. He made a catch, but you know it was called back because he did push off. I mean, it was a subtle push off. I've seen worse, but at the same time, at the end of the day, it was a push off to create that a little bit of extra separation, but you're right. Overall, body control isn't Ingram's best asset. No doubt about it. All right, anything else? There actually are some other points in the offense. What do you want to get to next? Yeah, just other points on the offense. We talked a little bit. Jonathan Harrison returned to the offensive line, and uh, I think uh, it was was it Shane Lemieux that was benched for Ted Larson after a false start. Yeah, we alluded to it a little bit before, and I, I don't think it's indicative of anything that's you know oh he's compromising Shane Lemieux's job or anything like that. It's just I think that was disciplinary. Do you have a different take on that? No, that's spot on. He's going to still be the starter, Shane Lemieux. But I, you know, I'll be honest with you, Nick. It's not a great feeling when. You have to bench this guy, Shane Lemieux, who's a fifth-round pick who was arguably the worst pass-blocking guard in the NFL last season on a personal basis, and you replace him with someone who wasn't on the roster two weeks ago. It just it doesn't feel like this plan on the offensive line was perfectly well-crafted. And now I'm not going to kill their management for that because if I can think of any position that's the hardest to plan for besides maybe quarterback, it's offensive line, man. It's just 
There's just none of them. They're not out there. It's hard to find. You draft them, maybe that'll help. Like, do we wish the Giants have used more mid-round picks, day three picks, or, or late day two picks on the line in the past three drafts? Sure. I'm sure you do, Nick. I'm sure I do. In the moment, though, I didn't see too many spots for it. Like, I would not rather, I wouldn't have wanted to jam one of those offensive linemen over Aaron Robinson, and I certainly don't want one of those offensive linemen who was left over Aziz right now. So, Aziz Ojolari in the second round, which I thought was a steal, and so did you. So, it's just the spots aren't there, but you just got to kind of hope moving forward they'll take more of those projects just to, you know, have depth in these situations. So you don't have to rely on Ted Larson here who was just cut and was just rolling around and now he's on the Giants. Like, you don't want to have to be in these spots. Trey Smith would be the one person, the kid from Tennessee who ended up going to Kansas City, but he had a really long medical history of just blood clots in his lungs. And the Giants also have Jeremy Pruitt, his old college coach on staff, and he didn't vouch for him unless maybe he did, and then the medicals just came back and the Giants didn't want to take a risk. But with one of those six-round picks, I, I would have liked to take that kick, but again, medicals are – they could be really, really tricky. But – um. I want to watch Jared Patterson just rip it up right now. I'm looking like just some people say he's the best back on that roster straight up. Some people who are watching his practice are like, this is the dude who runs the best between the tackles, nuances of playing the running back position, getting the most yards. And the Giants could have literally had, he was a UDFA. They could have had Trey Smith and him instead of Gary Brightwell. <laughs> just like, I don't want, like, I'm not trying to go off on these like sixth round decisions, but it's just funny to think about it sometimes. He's an elusive guy, man. He's he, he's he's a good player. Talking yeah. about Patterson, right? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, an it's, I think I think the same thing, man. And your boy, by the way, I wanted to point this out before we move on because I think the Giants could have maybe had a shot at him over Brightwell too. But that might he might have been taken slightly before Brightwell. I'm not sure. But one of the players that you brought up, remember when we did draft sleepers before the draft? We were doing a show a day on the NFL draft. That's for those of you new to the podcast. Get ready. We think we deliver our best content during draft season. I don't think there's a single Giants podcast that does anywhere near us during draft season. I don't think there's a single – there's very few draft podcasts. We should do our own draft podcast, honestly, with the kind of content we're putting out. And, wow, that was a massive humble brag. I don't think I've ever done that on that show. It feels weird, Nick. So and maybe we won't edit that out, but hopefully I won't do that again. But I'll say this. I think that I'm pretty sure Ramondre Stevenson, who's tearing it up and just looks freaking awesome out there, like he's one of those guys that's huge – powerful but also really fluid on his feet it's the marshawn lynch he's not marshawn lynch by the way but it's the mold if that's the mold when you're big strong but also fluid on your feet and you have those nimble quick feet that's such an incredible combo at running back and you i'm pretty sure nick you nailed him as one of your favorite draft sleepers on our draft sleepers podcast we did any position you're like this dude i love watching him play I did love watching him, and I felt like he fit the size mold that the Giants look for. He's about six foot, two hundred and thirty pounds. The Giants like those bigger backs, similar to Gary Brightwell, but they ended up going with him in the fourth round. So, oh, he was a fourth rounder. Okay, so I was definitely way off on that then. Okay, now nah, it's it's all good though. But uh, the Giants' offensive line, according to Rosenblatt, just in practice to go back to that, it, it was a little bit underwhelming, but. In the seven on in the uh, I think it's seven on seven and the well not the seven on seven the eleven on eleven I should say in the red zone they were really really good so that's a little bit of encouragement there about a unit that we're pretty concerned about yeah and apparently some good one on one reps for Ga- uh, I'm sorry Gates and Hernandez and I don't want to bury the lead I said earlier which is Jason Garrett had a great day for him I mean there was I want to talk about this there was a lot more creative pre-snap motion type stuff there was some backside wide receiver screens which we're hoping at some point Kadarius Tony can be a part of who knows when that will be at this stage of the development there but 
I'm happy he's starting to mix that in more because he said last year, like, you know, he had that whole exchange with Patty Train a couple weeks ago. He's like, yeah, it's a big part of our game plan, but we're using a lot of tempo, so we couldn't use that. Maybe, you know, he it, it took to heart a little bit. Maybe he did do what Joe said, Joe Judd said, and they're going to break down the film and see what happened and why the system was so, you know, bad last year. It was horrific. The Giants were 31st in offense and would have been 32nd if Adam Gase wasn't coaching an NFL team. And they didn't have the talent in my mind to be that bad. They should have been in the 20s. So we'll see if that happens. But I, I got to say, Nick, I love the fact that they're using more pre-snap motion some, some, uh, and a bigger commitment to the screen game because the screen game needs to be a part of this offense. Yeah, we saw it a decent amount last year, but I felt like it was always, I don't know, like telegraphed maybe a little. It just wasn't executed, and that's not necessarily fully on the coach, but it just seemed like defenses always knew when it was coming, and that that was obviously a problem. So I just hope that Garrett doesn't telegraph these little wide receiver screens because I think if you put Kadarius Tony out there, you put him out there for, you know, like 15 snaps and like two of them are screens. Every, like every time these defenders are going to read their keys, they're going to know that could be a screen to Kadarius Tony. So if you show that once or twice, I say on that third time, man, you gas that. You know, you run a fake screen pump right. action, and then you hopefully create an advantage for another receiver breaking down the field with a safety coming downhill to make a tackle on Tony. And that's something I don't feel like we saw a lot of last year from Jason Garrett. No, we did not. <laughs> Hopefully that'll change. All right, let's flip it over to the defensive side of the ball. Ooh, buddy, we got this defense, baby. This is this is the unit. Like, if the Giants are going to win the 10-11 games we hope they win this year, and maybe even more, who knows? Things can happen. Weirder things have happened. If it is, we think it's going to be driven by this unit. This defense, man, can be awesome. And if what had happened today at practice, let's say, somehow that's able to translate to 17 games, live games, this defense will be top five in the NFL. What had happened was a lot of what didn't happen last year, which was the pass rush winning often. Dan Duggan, you know, Tom Rock, and Art Stapleton in unison. When you see the beats in unison talking about this, especially when two of them are, you know, all three of these guys, Tom Rock, Art, Duggan, these are straight up, you know, button up dudes who do, ne- they, they, they are never interested in like catering to the fan base or giving the BS always roses for the Giants stuff. They're telling it like it is, these three, for sure. They have been for a long time, especially Tom Rock and Art Stapleton. Dan's a little bit newer to the beat. And they all raved about the Giants' ability to rush the passer today. Leonard Williams balled out at practice. He was the best player on the field for the Giants. Some said he was the best player on that field, which we knew. I mean, Leonard's awesome. But even more important, Aziz Ojolari and Lorenzo Carter had big days, man. Pressures on Baker Mayfield in team drills. There was a clip that you found of Ojolari just Blowing up Austin Hooper at the point of attack, playing that completely well. So break that one down and talk about what you saw from those guys as pass rushers, but also on that specific play. It's good to see, and I know this is a tight end, Austin Hooper, but he's a bigger tight end. I wouldn't say he's necessarily known for being a blocker, but he's a tight end who can block, uh, I would say adequately, probably not to the solid or good level, but still, you love to see Ojolari win. I mean, he won the pad level battle, which is not going to be hard against a giant like Austin Hooper, but he locked out, you know, sunk his hips, and then he shedded Hooper, who seemed to, and this is the one thing that it wasn't as much of a domination on Ojolari's part, but he shedded Hooper because Hooper seemed a little bit preoccupied with the C-gap. Maybe he thought somebody was going to be looping in there or blitzing or something along those lines, but then Ojolari took that, realized it really quickly, and then shot the gap and beat David Njoku's block because it was two tight ends towards that side, double Y tight end set, and he beat 
uh, Njoku, who was going to transition onto Ojolari, and it was just a sloppy transition from Hooper and Njoku, but Ojolari took advantage of that, and he also just showed strong hands, good base, good posture, all those things, and then he flushed Baker Mayfield out of the pocket, and that it probably wouldn't have been a sack. Mayfield was scrambling. It probably would have just been one of those plays where you throw the football out of bounds and, you know, chalk it up, live another day kind of thing from a quarterback's perspective, but still, it was a great rep from Ojolari just to take advantage of the mistake that Austin Hooper did make and David Njoku made. God, I love to hear it, Nick. Man, this defense, like, I think about this D, and if they can get something from Carter, if they can get a lot from Ojolari, if they can continue to get what they've been getting from Leonard Williams, and maybe, possibly, more from Dexter Lawrence as a pass rusher, when you have what they have on the back end, and that is, even if you just took what they had last year on the back end, but now you also add potentially later in the season, maybe now that it's gone slow, Aaron Robinson's lot. You definitely, hopefully, add a Dory Jackson on the boundary, carrying vertical routes, playing man coverage. I mean, the upside for this defense with a, my mind, top five at worst, probably closer to top three defensive coordinator in the NFL and Patrick Graham, that's real upside. That's upside for a top 10, top five defense. A defense that you can play, you know, I'll call it Joe Judge ball, quote unquote. It's not a knock, but a lot of what the Giants played last year was kind of to try to win 13-10, punting on fourth and twos in their opponent's territory, things of that nature. But you can play that style and win a lot of games. The Browns did it. You know, Browns, they're one of these teams that did it last year. They're not the only team that's done it. And if you have a defense like that, and the Browns didn't even have the defense. They just had a ball control offense. We saw that with the Cowboys back in 2016, Dak's first year. They didn't have a good defense, but they controlled the ball, and so they controlled the clock. But, you know, if you have that with the defense, you can grind out wins, and that's something I think we'll see a lot from when the Giants are doing well this year, grind out style wins. Yeah, that's what's going to happen if the defense rises, especially if the offense remains stagnant, which is something we really hope doesn't happen. But we need to get Saquon back on the field. We need Kenny Galladay to get back on the field. But there was some other news about the just Giants defense, according to Schmelk and Patino. Uh, oh, said, who's that? Wait a second. Friend <laughs> of the show. Favorite guest of the show. Favorite. No, never been a guest, but fa- our best friend, Paulie Dettino, the man who has – Literally never been anything but the most objective analyst in Giants history. Go on. Yeah, they said that the Giants were on fire, and uh, the defense specifically. Tatino said the Giants' defense was on fire. Oh, my God. If Tatino is saying the Giants' defense was on fire, you know they were great that day because his man would say they were terrible. Uh, Yeah. Oh my gosh! So was he? Was he coming from? I believe there was a Rangers spring or Rangers summer practice that he was covering before that. The New York Rangers. It was a joint practice with the with the with the Lightning. Is that right? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I know longtime listeners of the show will understand what Dan is referencing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Go on though. What did he say? They're on fire. What did they do? And it seems like they actually are, to be honest, though. It seems that the secondary was forcing a lot of PBUs, and the edge rushers were creating a lot of pressure, specifically Leonard Williams, who had a sack, big tackle for loss. And I got uh, eyes on the tackle for loss. It was a pretty epic play against Joel Petonio, who's a really good guard. Leonard Williams just sunk his body, got really low, shot his hands, exploded low to high, got underneath Petonio's shoulder pads, and just kind of lifted him up and backed him right into Nick Chubb, which would have been a tackle for a loss. And then our guy, Dan. Our, one of our guys that we, we didn't love last year, Devontae Downs, actually had a huge play when he carried rookie, I guess you can call him running back wide receiver, kid from UCLA, Demetric Felton, carried him downfield on a wheel route. And he executed really, really good technique on this play. Must have been listening to Jerome Henderson. And he knocked the ball up in the air for an interception that Quincy Wilson ended up receiving. And it was actually a pretty athletic play. Great technique. Used that inside hand. Was feeling with the outside hand. Was in really good position to knock the pass. Pass wasn't the best pass in the world. But still, it was a 
pretty encouraging play from Devontae Downs, a guy that we knocked a lot last year, and rightfully so. Yeah, Devontae Downs not a player that I'm personally a fan of, but maybe he can improve at this stage of his career. It's not impossible, especially second year in the system for him in this specific system. But I will say this, Nick. My main takeaway here is this is big. Why is it big? Not because the beat writers are talking about it, because we're seeing it, we're seeing evidence of it, and mostly because of the matchup. They're going against, arguably in my mind, and probably most other analysts' mind, the best offensive line in football. It's certainly the deepest. We know that for a fact. But honestly, the Browns might have the best offensive line, just straight-up starters, five across the board. There's not a single hole on that offensive line. Like, Treader might not be a top-ten center at this stage of his career. Maybe Batonio's not a top-ten guard at this stage of his career. Wyatt Teller might be the best guard in the NFL. Jedrick Wills, okay, maybe he's more in, like, the Andrew Thomas range right now. But Jack Conklin certainly played, like, a top-five, top-ten tackle in this system last year. So this is a really good offensive line in sync with their offense. And you know what was interesting most to me? Because we had Jake Burns on, and he said, you know, the Browns are known as this kind of, you know, zone-run-blocking team. But he said they're big—he charted everything, and he said their biggest runs— and most consistent run explosive plays came on power and gap schemes last year, which I thought was super interesting. But obviously, as you broke down, Nick, the Giants defense having a really good time right now, having a lot of success against arguably one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. Absolutely. And that's what you just want to hear. And it's something that I don't think we're concerned about, but losing Dalvin Tomlinson is something. That's that's not something just to kind of throw away. Dalvin Tomlinson right. is a pivotal piece of what Patrick Graham wanted to do and if they can replicate at least to you know 85 percent of what Dalvin Tomlinson provided with the likes of Austin Johnson and Danny Shelton and then you still maintain the level of Leonard Williams play from 2020 while also seeing growth from Dexter Lawrence then we're looking at a really really dominant defensive line to pair with an excellent secondary that has a lot of young pieces on it and that's just a recipe for a great defense that can hopefully carry the offense if that offense continues to kind of struggle which we hope it doesn't yeah for sure all right let's get to some tweets from the beats and wrap this up we'll start with one from pat leonard of the new york daily news he said joe judge seemed to be barking at Browns coach Kevin Stefanski after a couple harder than necessary Browns hits on Giants players Alec Bachman or Alex Bachman and Devontae Booker. Browns DC then called the defense together and spoke to him. Anything to make of this? No, not really. I mean, uh, after practice, Joe Judge talked a lot about Kevin Stefanski, the respect that he has for Kevin Stefanski. They're both from Pennsylvania, and he talked about how it's a, a small knit community of like football guys from Pennsylvania, and he knows Kevin really well because I think Kevin played with his younger brother or something like that, or maybe his older brother, something along those lines. At some, uh, it was either in college or in high school, so they're uh, they're on a friendly. Uh, I guess you could say they're friendly, <laughs> and I don't really read too much into it. It's just I like to the fact that he's kind of letting Stefanski know, hey, like, rein your guys in here a little bit. Don't, you know, this is practice. We shouldn't be trying to go out here hurting each other. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. But I will say this, Kevin Stefanski, a lot of connections to the Giants. I mean, he would have been the offensive coordinator under Pat Shermer if the Vikings had not blocked him from that interview. And I watched 16 games on the All-22 film last year, 16 games. One of those, Sean McVay was calling plays. And I thought the single best game plan from any offensive play caller last year versus the Giants, by far, 
both from a play calling standpoint and from a game plan standpoint, was Kevin Stefanski's Browns game plan. Yes, James Bradbury wasn't in the game, but it doesn't matter. He found such excellent way to attack Patrick Graham's zone heavy defense, and he was finding holes in there. Baker Meeple was ripping him in, and it looked easy for them out there. And then they just stopped throwing the ball because they didn't need to because the Giants offense couldn't move the ball. But they could have had 400, 450 yards passing in that game if they needed to that day. So all the props in the world to Kevin Stefanski. He stood out to me last year as a play caller. And Mayfield was on fire in that game with the timing because in order to really carve up zone heavy defenses, your timing and rhythm need to be spot on because right when the receiver breaks through one defender zone into another defender zone, there's a little bit of space and a little window to thread the football in. And I got to say, Baker Mayfield looked really good against the Giants last year. No doubt about it. All right, another tweet from the beat. According to, I believe this was Zach Rosenblatt, the Giants had a team bonding experience at Top Golf this week. He said this is one of the low key good things about these joint practices. There's a lot of team bonding experience. Hey, Nick, do you remember when I beat you at Top Golf, having never picked up golf? Well, having picked up a golf club maybe three times in my life, and that's no exaggeration. My brother can confirm that in my life. Do you remember me beating you? I remember you struggling to swing the club, and it would dribble into the. No, there were no dribbles. There were no. There was not. And, a and you possibly having a higher score while I was driving the ball pretty far with with solid with solid range, I would say. I just have one word for you, Nick. Scoreboard. <laughs> All right. All right. One other. Better, you're right. What did you say? I gotta be better. You're right. All right. One other, that's Dan one, Nick zero, just for any of you who are counting. Uh, and one other tweet from the beat, Trent Harris had a big day, and this is a second straight good uh, joint practice. He had a big sack in the team periods. What are you making of the Trent Harris kind of sleeper right now for the Giants? They like Trent Harris, and I mean, he had a little role on this defense before he got injured last year. He's somebody who was familiar with Patrick Ram, who came over from Miami. And I think it's an interesting player. I just think the edge group right now is kind of deep. It might be hard for him to break into that, but these practices are definitely encouraging for someone like Trent Harris, somebody who is solid against the run. He can, you know, set the edge, do all those things. Doesn't offer a lot of upside as a pass rusher, but if he keeps figuring out ways to sack opposing quarterbacks, then, you know, look out Ryan Anderson and some of these other back-end edge guys. I think here's a take I'm going to have, Nick. Here's a take. Here's a take. Here's a take. I think as we watch this Patrick Graham defense, and even if Patrick Graham gets snapped up by some team that's smart enough to hire him next year, and they get in somebody like Patrick Graham or somebody who's going to run the Patriots way style defense, because I don't think the Giants are getting away from that anytime under the judge. I think as we continue to cover these teams through the years with this style defense, there's going to be a Trent Harris every year because last year it was your ball sheared who came out of nowhere. It's the system, man. Like this system's going to bring out surprise sleeper pass rushers because there's just so many good spots for them by the way the Giants design their defense and by the way that they're running this style of defense. And so it might be Trent Harris this year. I can see it happening. It doesn't matter what his pedigree is. It doesn't matter past success. I mean, Jabal Sheard was all but washed up, it seemed, with the Jaguars. I mean, totally by that point. I watched some of his film with the Jaguars before the Giants signed him. He looks so slow out there. He looked like out of shape and slow. He comes to the Giants, he's immediately productive in this system, just immediately productive. And so I think this system is going to breed a lot of surprise production and the edge spot.
It very well could. I mean, Trent Harris in week 10, right before he got injured, he had three pressures against Philadelphia and ended up getting, I think, a half sack in that game. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that. He really knows the scheme, and it seemed like Graham trusted him as a back-end type of guy. But I, I just I think the odds are stacked against him because of all the depth the Giants added right. in position, which is a good thing for us, to be honest. Yeah, maybe he's only playing because of the Ellerson Smith situation, which is also a disappointment. The Giants rookies off to a slow start, man. With slow, the, bro. You know, Aziz Ojolari, man, they're not. It's crazy. They might be the only team in the NFL that hasn't seen almost anything so far this deep into camp, this deep into the preseason from their first, third, and fourth round picks. It's not great. Dude, um, think think about that for a second, though. Literally outside of Aziz Ojolari and Rodarius Williams, we've gotten almost nothing from Kadarius Tony. We've gotten nothing from Aaron Robinson. Not a lot from Gary Brightwell. I mean, this is nothing from Ellison Smith. Nothing from Ellison Smith. That that's that's. Probably only the Giants are struggling with that issue right now, and it's Maybe. obviously not a fault of any anybody per se, but you just need these guys to get healthy and get on the field, and I just wish we kind of knew what was going on with Kadarius, too. Yeah, the Giants are not going to be a team under Joe Judge who tells us that, and I'm fine with that personally. I, I, yeah, I like yeah. that type of page. That stuff I like a lot more, even the benching preseason starter stuff. That stuff I like a little more. The, the wind sprints after practice and that stuff, I, I mean, I'm fine with it, but I'm definitely not celebrating it as the greatest thing ever, and we'll see if it if it lasts. They'll have to win games in my mind, and hopefully they will. Last tweet, and then we're going to get to some questions from the listeners from iTunes. Browns beat reporter Zach Jackson praised the Giants pass rush. He said, this Giants pass rush is pretty good. I think it means something. I mean, I think it means a lot more when I hear it from Browns beat reporter Zach Jackson than Giants, uh, I, I, I don't know what to call him, beat reporter, I guess, Paul Dottino. Well, some might call him a shill. Just kidding, just kidding, Paul. Just joking. Hopefully you're not listening to that. That was just a little joke. But at the same time, not really, because you went off on me for no reason on Twitter and just were totally disrespectful to me. So grudges held, bridges were burned that day. But anyway, when you hear it from a Browns beat reporter, Zach Jackson, it means a little more to me, Nick. Absolutely, yeah. It's always good to hear people who are outside of the Giants bubble praising the Giants. And that's, sure. hopefully, hopefully we hear that from the offensive line one day. <laughs> yes. God, I, like I said, tweeted it out. Even if it takes me to 76 years old, I want to one day say the Giants have the best offensive line in the NFL, or the Giants have one of the best offensive line in the NFL. Just one day, Nick. I, don't, it's, I haven't said it yet in my life. Actually, no. If I was covering this team or cared more about a uh, little, not more, I still love them back then, but if I was as into it and from a coverage standpoint back then, in 2008, I might have been able to say it. they might have had the best offensive line, certainly had one of the best offensive lines in 2008, 2007, maybe it was up there as well. But even then, man, it's been, what, 11, 13 years since we've been able to, I mean, come on, that's so long for it to have a bottom five offensive line year after year. Yeah, it's, it's, it sucks. So hopefully hopefully it turns around. And I will say this, Nick, because it is worth saying. It's truly worth saying, and it's just seemingly getting buried under the rug, and I'm not going to let it get buried under the rug on the Big Blue Bandrew podcast. I don't, you don't have to get on this soapbox with me, Nick. I'm okay if you sit, want to sit this one out. But the first thing Dave Gettleman said he's going to do here and what he's supposed to be great at, he said, I'm going to fix this offensive line. That's the first thing he said he's going to do. He has not used that man's draft capital. I know some people are like, oh, he took Andrew Thomas. He took, uh, well, Andrew Thomas and Will Hernandez is only major draft capital swings. With the amount of draft capital they've had the past four drafts, that's not much. And he's not taking a lot of these mid-round developmental guys. So, and regardless of any of that anyway, the bottom line is this offensive line looks, again, like going to be one of the worst in the NFL, most likely. Maybe they can get to average, we hope, but... 
I'm more hopeful in my mind, and it's more likely in my mind, that this offensive line won't look as bad because the offensive skill players and Daniel Jones and Jason Garrett are making them look better than the actual players one-on-one. So just needs to be said. He said he's going to fix it. It's the first thing he said he's going to do. He's supposed to be an offensive line game film breakdown guru. And it's been four years and a lot of swings because they also signed Nate Soldier. They also signed Patrick Omame. And yet, despite all these swings right now, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't. It hasn't. I mean, hopefully we get some more progression from Will Hernandez, Andrew Thomas. I'm, I'm optimistic about Matt Parrott. Uh, I'm not not optimistic about Matt Parrott. It's just I, I need to see it with my eyes at a more consistent level. I think there are definitely physical attributes that Parrott brings to the table that are very, very intriguing. The footwork, the long arms, the build, all of those things. Now, can he put it all together? That's because we all know how raw he was coming out of UConn. If he could put it all together this year, this offensive line could hopefully jolt into around the 20 range instead of the 32nd ranked offensive line. Without a doubt. All right, let's get to some reading. Let's get to reading reviews. Disabled vet, vet from Mississippi said, this one's going back a few podcasts. Think about the guys working out in the heat. Do yourself a favor and never ask a roofer or any labor working outside to come back after 10 a.m. At best, you'll get laughed at. I love the show. Keep up the great content. Sincerely, someone that used to have to work in the heat. I am sorry, disabled vet from Mississippi. My bad. I didn't mean to offend you, and I didn't mean to sound not, you know, and not sympathetic or empathetic toward people who have to do this job. Because you're right. It is a lot harder than any job I've ever done in my life. And it's a lot harder than any job I'm ever going to do in my life. And so I get it. They, you know, they don't want to be out there in the dead of the heat. I totally understand. But what about like, I was thinking about this. Like when, when I read this, I'm just throwing this out there to table vet for miss. My bad if it's another bad one. But like, what about later in the day? Like in that like 4 p.m. to, it's light out now until like 9 p.m. What about like, you know, 3 to 6 or I'm sorry, 3 to 8. What about that little five-hour chunk? Like, it's not as hot then. I don't know. I just feel like a constant banging on the roof at 6.30 a.m. for, what was it, Nick, for you? Like, 10 straight days? It's tough. Like, I don't know how people can live with that. Sleep is important. Sleep is very important. All right. All right we're done, though. Yogi says, the intro music is phenomenal. I'm loving the new intro music. I hope you guys are keeping it every episode. We are. That's the good thing. He says, my question, if you're resigning one, only one, after the fifth year, are you taking Jabril Peppers? Evan Ingram, Barkley, or Daniel Jones? I don't think it's fair to group Jones in here. That's such a, like, that's too tough. I mean, it's like it's a whole different conversation, right? Yeah, the whole Daniel Jones thing, I, I, just because he's a quarterback and we don't know, I don't want to weigh in with that. But of the other three, I'm just going to say Jabril Peppers, I believe. Yes. I don't want to Alec, I don't want to reset the market, the running back market with Saquon Barkley as much as I like Saquon Barkley. I think you can franchise tag, attempt the franchise tag. Who knows if this camp is going to, you know, try to pull up Ezekiel Elliott there. It's, it could end up being a mess, but, you know, I love the kid's character. I love what he brings to the football team, but I don't want to allocate, you know, 18 to 20% of my cap on a running back. Of course not. No one no one wants to do that. In my mind, no one that's thinking a bit logically about the situation wants to do that, especially with all the evidence we have, man. Todd Gurley mega contract, disaster. Le'Veon Bell mega contract, disaster. Ezekiel Elliott mega contract, not great. The Cowboys want out of that. They don't want in that right now. So it's just, it's, it's not great. The history's not great. Maybe he can be an outlier, I hope, because I think the Giants will re-sign him to, I've made the prediction, I've been saying this for two or three years, basically since they drafted him. Saquon Barkley will get a second deal with the Giants, and it will be the richest contract in NFL history for a running back. Just, just my prediction. We'll see what happens. All right, let's see. Winnie the Jew. First of all, what a name, Winnie the Jew. I, I just like it. I don't know. I love all names with the Jew at the end of it, and maybe it's because I'm Jewish. But he said, the best Giants podcast out there. Thank you, Winnie. 
He's rewriting my review so he can get a question in. Well done. Anyone else who's already done a review, feel free to rewrite, get a question in. said, if you could have kept one of the following giants healthy for their entire career. Oh, this is a great question. So we have more questions after this. We're going to save them for all you who got in. 50 years of Giants fan, Nikki Com, the good man, True Blue, Bull, ba- Bull Bittler, or Beitler, or Bull yeah, Byler. And Sam the Giants fan, we will get to your questions on the next Bob. We'll save We'll end it here with a great one from Winnie the Jew. One of the favorite questions I've got. If you could keep any of the following Giants players, Nick, healthy for their entire career, I, I know my answer. I'm curious yours. Would it be Victor Cruz, Hakeem Nix, David Wilson, Kenny Phillips, or Will Beatty? Jeez, ah. This is a snap call for me, so I'm happy it's taking you more time. Maybe, maybe you'll have a different one than me. Yeah, I want to hear yours first. All right. Um, but then I feel like you're going to – all right, all right, Nick. But if it's the same Is yours Kenny Phillips? Yeah, it is. Okay. So I thought yours was going to be Kenny Phillips, and I'm yeah. trying to really weigh into it. Kenny Phillips was an excellent player who was just cut down by injury, but I also think Akeem Nix it was an excellent wide receiver, and his injury kind of – slowed that offense down, but I'm trying to remember how old he was when he was injured. And I, I so could he look- was super young, Hakeem Nix, when he was injured. I yeah, think so he was 26. I think Hakeem Nix, and I know he wasn't the, I guess, known for creating separation, but he was so good in contested catch. The body control thing we were yes. talking about earlier, yes. he was excellent with body control. The guy had, like, we talked about Odell Beckham's hands. Like, I felt like Hakeem Nix's hands were even bigger than Odell. Like, just monster. Mean- monster hands. So I might lean that direction, but I also don't want to write off Victor Cruz, but I'm also talking about wide receivers here. When you have a tackle, Will Beatty, solid tackle, good, solid tackle. All the offensive line, uh, like issues the Giants have had over the last 10 years, it leans in that direction, but I just don't think he's the best player out of all this. It wasn't that good, Beatty, I think for me. I get your standpoint. Like I would love to have a tackle of all these positions, but I'm going to make my case for Phillips. So Phillips, first of all, had the microfracture knee injury and surgery before microfracture was something you come back from. When he had it, it was just before the medical, you know, the, the science broke through and you were able to come back occasionally. Even now, it's not great. Micro, if you get the microfracture, it's almost as bad as the Achilles these days for these NFL players. But he had it, it ruined his career. But when he was at his peak before the injuries, he was exactly what I've always talked about, that two-way safety that can play the deep half. And they were just they were just like one high safety. Kenny Phillips in that deep half, he could come down in the run game he could blitz he didn't need to though he would he was crashing like he was crashing passing zones in as a deep half safety in just such fun fashion the way he drove on the football yeah when i'll tell you this we talked i've talked about some previous podcasts nick remember the play i talked about last year from xavier mckinney that last game of the season against the cowboys we drove downhill and came like inches away from jumping a pass for an interception do you know the play i'm referencing i do yeah that's the play that always when i see safeties make that play i'm like whoa that's the rare play that a safety like, – I see like four safeties making those kinds of plays consistently in NFL. Phillips was making those plays consistently. I think that he could have been one of the best and most rare safeties because those deep half safeties, you know, those one guys you can play in one high, the Ed Reed types I'll call them. There's, and he was never at Reed level. No one is. But they're so rare, man. They're like just a di- – they're rarer almost than quarterback. They honestly are. They're rarer – they're definitely rarer than offensive linemen. And so and we're hoping maybe McKinney can be that guy. But I don't know. Phillips is another level. So I, for me, just to have that potential two-way, deep half, single-eye safety playing at that high of a level, it, it's got to be Phillips for me. Yeah, Phillips was great. I mean, I even like think of like other guys like Terrell Thomas, who were solid players, and they were just yeah. dinged up a lot throughout their career. Tore his ACL back in I think it was a, 
I think it was 2011, and then he did it again in 2012. He was a really good player coming out of – He did it in college too. Yeah, yeah. So he was just someone like, like – and I always like kind of link him with Kenny Phillips because it was around the same time period. I want to say Terrell Thomas was drafted in 2008, and Kenny Phillips was what? 2008, right? Yeah, I think they were both 2008 class. Yeah, so I mean that that was just devastating for the Giants. The slew of injuries to their secondary, but then uh, Corey Webster kind of stepped up. Uh, you know, tw- 2007 during that playoff run. By the way, I got to meet Corey Webster. Very very nice guy. He was he was an awesome awesome individual. Showed me his ring and everything like that. He's, nice. he's a cool cool guy. Yeah, Dude. but uh, yeah, if I had to, if I had to pick one. Uh, I might go with Akeem Nix, man. Nix, nice. I love it. I mean, one of the first jerseys I got, well, not first. I had Seahorn, I had Shockey, but I loved Akeem Nix. That Tampa Bay Buccaneers game, I think, regular season, it was the game, I think it was his last, like, it was when the injury happened, or maybe, no, it was coming back from injury. Eli threw for, like, 500 yards, and Nix had, like, 200 of them, and he was just, like, absolutely manhandling the corners. That was the uh, game against Aqib Tlaib. It was a young yes. Aqib Tlaib, like maybe like two or three years into his career. Yeah. Akeem Nix literally just torched him. And it was like crazy because like a year or two later, Aqib Tlaib is a top five cornerback in the league, just absolutely dominating. But Akeem Nix just had his way with it. I remember that. Yep. All right, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you again for everyone tuning into the Big Blue Banter podcast. Remember, if you want to help us grow, there's a few easy ways to do it. Make sure you hit – if you're not an iTunes user, we hope you are because if you are, go to your podcast app on, on or on iTunes and go scroll all the way down to the, our, on our podcast homepage. Click leave a rating and review. Give us five stars and write in a question or tell us a comment or give us a take or say something you like or don't like, whatever it may be. But give us five stars. Leave us a rating review. If you ask a question, it will be answered on the show. As always, follow us on Instagram at NYBigBlueBanter. That's NYBigBlueBanter on YouTube. Big Blue Banter. Search it. More will be coming there in the future. And as always, keep it locked and loaded here because we will be coming hard and heavy with a lot of Giants content, baby. We're in the stretch run. It's coming soon. Giants 2021 season. Have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.